0: The book of John is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. We have looked at the beginning of the first chapter, the first 18 verses, talking about Christ coming into the world, how He is God dwelling with us. And so He is the tabernacle, and He is also the doorway by which we enter into the presence of the tabernacle, that dwelling place where God's glory is. So we are reminded that we must come to the tabernacle, but also we enter through the door. We enter through Christ. And when we enter the door, we are faced with the reality of the need for sacrifice for sins. And so we have Christ as the Lamb of God. And in beholding the Lamb of God, we see that perfect sacrifice by which our sins are paid for. And in that, we find that having a sacrifice for sins... It's also a burnt sacrifice, which is about holiness. And so having a sacrifice that is devoted to God, that is consumed by God, makes it so that we are reminded of the need to be devoted to God in the whole of life. And so this section ends with these disciples, these disciples being called. We were talking about discipleship last time. We see two more disciples coming to Christ. We looked at John the Baptist calling disciples and John the Baptist seems almost like a mythical figure, a man who wears clothing that is strange and eats locusts, a man who is—he seems beyond us. And yet he tells us that Christ is beyond him. And so we are called to follow a man who is above and better than John the Baptist. And yet we are supposed to call people to follow after Christ. We don't just have that ending with John. We have that carrying on with the other disciples. So verse 43, we have a change. As opposed to just John the Baptist preparing the way and calling disciples after Christ, we now have men who are disciples of Christ calling other disciples. So verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so Philip lives in the same city that Andrew and Peter live in. He knows who they are. So this call to follow after Jesus, this is supported by a testimony from Andrew and Peter. Philip is not somebody who's just dealing with a stranger. And he's also not dealing with this grand figure, John the Baptist. He's dealing with Andrew and Peter. Ordinary men who are saying, you should follow after Christ. Christ himself is saying, follow me. But there's also the testimony of Andrew and Peter. We sometimes think that our words are insignificant in being able to be used to cause people to follow after Christ. And so we feel as though we ought not to do it. We shouldn't do it. This won't work. This won't be effective. I I don't want to say this. This feels odd. And yet in being called to do this, we are reminded that men, ordinary men, Andrew and Peter, at the beginning of their time with Jesus, are part of this testimony to call Philip. So Jesus calls Philip. Tells him to come. And be his disciple, to follow him. So we need to remember, what is a disciple? A disciple is a serious student, a committed student, who seeks to bless his human teacher with honor, service, and material goods. A discipler is a serious, committed teacher, who seeks to bless his human students with wisdom And he doesn't do it in order to get the honor, to get service, or to get the material goods. He does it because of the glory of God and for his own good. And he's willing to give up honor, service, and goods in order to accomplish the goal of teaching. So we see this with the Apostle Paul over and over again. He's willing to give up his rights, give up the things he's owed as an apostle in order to have the teaching be more effective. So these are the things that make this relationship. In general, people can teach you things in passing. You can listen to a podcast. You can talk to somebody on the street. You can have somebody that you have a brief conversation with in an airport and never see them again. You can learn things from them. But there's a difference between that and the discipling relationship. The word disciple is rooted in the word discipline. Discipline. Go to look at page two. Real quickly, something I said last week, I would mentioned that the hour of the day, Just um, the text we were reading through, it talks about the 10th hour of the day. And there's two ways you can read the time. Somebody asked me about this, I can't remember who. Uh, but you can read it as a Jewish reading of the time, the 10th hour of the day since sunrise, or it can be the Roman reading of the time, the 10th hour since midnight. Um, and I think I had communicated, that I thought it was 10 a.m., which is the 10th hour since midnight, that's Roman time, uh, but if it were the... Uh, the Jewish time, using the daylight, uh, then what you would have is you'd be looking at um, you'd be looking at from 6 a.m., which is counted as the beginning when the day comes, um, and so you'd be looking at 4 p.m. Uh, so, it's just something that somebody brought up, and I can't remember who, but I wanted to make sure that was clear. that You could read it either way, and I have chosen to read it as from in the Roman time, um, and uh, didn't explain that. So, page two, continuing with discipleship. We have the example of John the baptizer saying twice, "Behold, the Lamb of God." We have Jesus calling disciples, and we have John calling disciples. John, in calling disciples to Jesus, doesn't just say it once. For the first time, he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world," and none of his disciples go and follow Jesus. Think about that for a second. You are John the Baptist. You have been preaching about the coming Messiah. You've been saying your entire ministry, baptism, is about preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And then you tell people, hey, here's the Messiah, and nobody does anything. Would that be discouraging at all to you? You have people you've been teaching about this for a while. But he doesn't stop. Right? We just talked about how you enter into a discipling relationship where you're trying to invite people to come to worship God, to learn about God. You ask them to be committed. You ask them to be students. And so there's this fear of bringing that word in a sense of inadequacy. And when it doesn't work, you can be tempted to stop there. John the Baptist kept going and he gives that with the example of Christ. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. And he says it again. So a persistence in teaching the truth is what we're called to. And we need to remember When we call people to discipleship, when we preach the word of God, when we tell people the gospel, it will never save anybody unless the Holy Spirit illuminates them. So we have to pray. We need to look to God to be the one who is effectual. We need to preach the word, and we need to preach the word again, and we need to pray. We need to preach the word again. We need to pray again. We need to preach the word again. And pray again. You keep going. And it's funny, it's a lot harder to get somebody to come and listen to a sermon than it is to get a person to listen to a friend. There are many who would not enter the house of God who will enter your house. And so, if you are willing to invite people in, Do not waste hospitality. Use that hospitality to teach, to disciple, to bless. Do not think of discipleship as a way to get honor and to get goods and to get service out of people. But instead, use any honor that you have, providing service and using your goods to bless, and you will find that the Lord multiplies it. If you glorify God with what you have, you will find that He prospers you. He will tend to do it in this life, but he will certainly do it in the next. When we come to Philip, Philip being in Bethsaida, there's a reputation for John the Apostle, Andrew and Peter. And they exercised good followership in the sense that they encouraged people to follow good leaders in a glorious cause. It's funny, when you talk about discipleship and when you talk about the idea of trying to work well as a team and and supporting leaders, it's overwhelmingly the case that the people who are doing the best job are the ones that tend to feel convicted by these sermons. You say, you need to be a committed disciple. You need to be careful to seek to do your duty. You need to be committed to each other. You need to be trying to accomplish things. And the people that are already trying the hardest are the ones that tend to go, I'm doing a terrible job. I need to repent in dust and ashes. And I need to improve. And then, nary a peep from those who are not picking up the burden. So I want to encourage you to examine yourselves, knowing that the law of God can convict all of us. But examine yourself and consider Is discipleship is committed student behavior, a duty that God establishes in his word, or not? And what am I doing to pursue growth, and what am I doing to disciple others? It's fun to teach people until it's not. It's fun to teach people until it's not. When people have really difficult things going on, it becomes really difficult. And if people have problems that they need help resolving... That becomes demanding. And when you start to teach people things and it brings them into conflict with other people, and then the person who's in the wrong doesn't like you, doesn't like what you're saying, and oftentimes they can find other people to bring to bear to tell you that what you're advising the person about, you're wrong about. Right? When you teach other people, the truth divides. And it tends to divide more than you would expect, especially as it starts to go into the details of people's lives. Teaching is fun until it's not. And the question is, if you want to be a committed discipler, are you willing to work through the difficult things? Now, one of the things that happens is people want to be discipled until it's no longer easy. So there's kind of this duality here. There's the commitment of a discipler and a commitment of somebody being discipled. And so... A error can be drawn in, try to deal with the mess, deal with the difficulty, make enemies, and then the person who's being taught goes, I don't want to do this. I don't want to deal with these things. I don't want to take on the burdens of what God commands in his word. And so then, they abandon the person that's teaching them, and then join in the critics. This is why people don't want to do this. This is why what preachers would prefer to do is to have a distant relationship at a pulpit, and to not deal with the lives of the sheep. it's messy. Now, the Bible has a different model. It requires one elder per ten households because it's messy and it's time-consuming. And because it's messy and time-consuming, it requires one in ten men, the best men, the most mature men, to be able to deal with it. And so there's a spreading out of the teaching responsibility, and there's a spreading out of the counseling responsibility, and a spreading out of that work, but there's a lot to do. And the way that you make safety in a discipler and discipling relationship is covenant. The institution of the church has covenant relationships where people who are committing to be discipled get baptized and make profession, and they renew covenant at the Lord's table. So covenant relationship makes it so that over and over again those who are being taught are swearing to uphold their duties. And the people who are in responsibility to teach are also over and over again covenanting to uphold their duties. They're swearing over and over again. So every time we have the Lord's Supper, we are swearing to use our gifts to work with each other. So covenant relationship provides safety for the discipleer and the disciple. And if there's a failing, if there's a running away, there's a court, a public court of the church to be able to come to when elders fail or when disciples fail. Look down at page 2, Roman numeral I. The goal of somebody who's discipleeing is to find people and help to mature them. The goal is not to make them permanently dependent, the goal is to make them independent. The goal is to cause them to be mature and to have them join the work. And so you take little children and you seek to grow them to young men, and you take young men and you seek to see them as fathers. Hopefully these things are not new to you. It's not tedious for me to tell you. I hope it's not tedious for you to hear it. In fact, it is safe for you that these things should be said again. 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14, what does it say? I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Even the littlest faith brings with it the forgiveness of sins. Being immature in the faith has the forgiveness of sins. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Okay, so do little children have forgiveness of sins but no knowledge of God? No, look down at the next time it says little children. Right? It says, I write to you little children because you have known the Father. The knowledge of God is given even in small form to the least mature believer. And There's the forgiveness of sins fathers what does it say they have known him who is from the beginning the second time it mentions fathers look at verse 14 it says i have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning repetition what does that mean why am i repeating this it means emphasis that's right and if i'm repeating it it's to emphasize it too the knowledge of god is what fathers have it's also what little children have and the knowledge of god is how you get more mature how about the young men so the fathers are mature in the knowledge of God, the little children are forgiven, and even they have a little knowledge of God. What do the young men have? I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. They are starting to fight. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. They've already been saved. There's some sin being put off, there's some unbelief being put off, and there's more to do. There's more sin to put off, there's more evil to overcome. So let's look at the notes I have below explaining those a little bit more. Okay, little children. Those who are immature in the faith who need milk. They tend to be inert, inactive, useless. They require nurture and guarding, but they're not contributing to the work or seeking to contribute. They are looking for. Ne- they not looking... Uh, to help meet needs, but they're looking for their needs to be met. They're looking to be provided for and not to provide. They're looking to be served and not to serve. Imagine how dangerous it is to put someone like this into a leadership position. They make the leadership position into a tool to get from you, to fleece the sheep. And if they're not a believer at all, that's even more dangerous. They're a wolf. So the young men... The young men have spotty knowledge of God, manifested in places of skill, actions, and communication that are very inconsistent. You can have blazing glory at one moment and blazing incompetence the next. If you can't relate to that, think harder. (laughs) Those who are beginning to eat meat, they're starting to discern and fight, but they do so poorly. And they frequently nurture the wrong targets and attack the wrong targets. They're undiscerning but well-intentioned sheepdogs who want to become useful but are struggling through it. They're looking to serve and looking to be served for the purpose of becoming more useful. I'm always delighted to see the incompetent effort to fight. It is the signs of better things to come. It is important that we not squelch those who are starting to fight because it is so easy to make people give up on effort and to stunt them for years. Fathers. Fathers have a deep knowledge of God manifesting clear thought, decisive right action, and clear communication. Those who are mature in the faith and who by practice have been able to become skilled in differentiation and fighting, and who are able to nurture, discipline, and nourish the lambs while fighting off the wolves. They are good at telling the difference, and so they generally shoot at the right guys, and they give food to the right guys. Not always. You cannot read men's hearts. But generally. So when we think about these positions, good followership is necessary for good leadership. Good followership seeks to be taught and to quickly apply rebukes and corrections and to seek after training and to reward the one who trains. Sorry for the incomplete text there. Good leaders are elder qualified men with a goal in mind who are able and willing to train in the appointed means to use. And they're going to show this ability in a prophetic way, a priestly way, a kingly way. So, think about this, this call. Okay, jump back with me to the text. Verse 43 and 44. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. This call to follow, we, we sometimes forget the context is not just, Hey, follow me. Let me show you where the nearest ice cream shop is. The, the, the thing he's saying is, I would like you to devote yourself to learning from me. I would like you to hear rebukes and corrections. I would like you to come and let me help to shape the way you think. That invitation is a startling invitation. Who do you know that if they asked you to do that, you would go, yeah, okay, let's do this. It's a startling invitation. And that startling invitation is something that is difficult to get people to pursue after. What is it that you need to do to give somebody reasonable evidence that they should follow after you? We're trying to point people to Christ, but we're asking them to follow us because we're saying, I'm not blind. I have been given sight and I can show you the way. That's what we're asking people to do. We're asking them to be discipled by us in how to be discipled by Christ. When you evangelize, you are asking people to do that. Otherwise, you're just saying, here's Jesus, go figure it out. And a lot of the modern evangelism is just that. Here's Jesus, go figure it out. What we're supposed to do is to say, here is Jesus, come with me, and let me show you how to serve him. And that call to not only follow Jesus, but to come And to engage in committed discipleship. That is a very different thing from how we tend to deal with things in our own culture. So if you want people to to follow in discipleship from a person. They need to be seeing these things. And they're looking for these things. When I'm about to list these out, you're going to go, yeah, of course. But you need to figure out how do you help people to see that this is available when you're trying to encourage them to follow after Christ. So, first, you want them to see that there's a prophetic vision. You, you can teach them there's a goal in life, there's meaning to life, there's a goal worth seeking after, and you can show them how that is the case. Right? The glory of God is the goal. And if the glory of God is the goal, then also there's a question of well, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you advance that? How do you advance the glory of God? So are there steps to take? Point two. And if there's steps to take, are there multiple ways to do it? Does it like depend upon the circumstances? Like, Is advancing the glory of God in 2023 different in any way than advancing the glory of God in the year 1000? Well, there are some things that remain the same, but I'll tell you what, there are different problems. And so the law of God is going to teach us our duties, but there are different problems that have to be tackled. Some problems are the same, some are different. Is starvation as big of a problem for you as it was for the average person in the year 1000, do you think? Do you think that might change the focus of what you're doing on a daily basis? There's a duty to teach and prove the goodness of the plan and laying out more details as they apply in this life, if I try to get up here and catalog for you all of the scenarios that you might confront and try to give them to you in an orderly and systematic way, that would be very burdensome and tedious to you. What I'm supposed to do is go through the text and look for applications that are more important for your life. There are many things to be said about texts that do not get said. Now, they might be implicitly there, they might be gathered there in a seed form, but what you draw out is meant to help people to apply something to a particular problem or it's just plainly there in the text and has to be dealt with. Then, here's the part you can't prove. You have to convince people that the problem of the day is a particular thing and that we should apply the solution. So the Bible commands you to rebuke some people and it commands you to encourage other people. If I always tell you the answer is rebuke the person, then the problem might come to bear that you see, you know, it seems like everything's a nail to you or you're just a hammer. We have to find the circumstances based upon evidence of what's going on and apply the law of God in a fitting way And sometimes leaders are going to fail at that. That part's not infallible. The word of God is infallible, but identifying the problem is not. And one of the reasons it's so important to have everybody be involved, to have everybody judge, is because you need multiple people to be a part of the council of war. You need multiple people to engage with how do we improve things, how do we fix things. Some people get tired of hearing all the questions about what are we supposed to do? Our society's collapsing? Everything's bad? What do we we see? There's all this stuff going on where kids are being indoctrinated into nonsense by left-wingers and all that kind of stuff. And there's these discussions over and over again. I see a lot of people complaining about the discussions. The discussions are valuable. The discussions cause you to be recommitted that there's a problem that needs to be solved. And the discussions involve you discussing with each other, sharpening each other in what it is that's supposed to happen. What are we supposed to do? What is the evidence of what the day is? And so that work of thinking about the problem and thinking about the solutions that might be applied is valuable, and doing it out loud helps to check your thoughts. Now, if all you do is talk, that's a problem. Because here's the next thing you're supposed to do. If you just think and talk, you sit in the corner and don't do anything. You're being disobedient. So leadership also looks like this. It looks like being a priest. You devote your time to the cause. You devote your time to the team. You build the team. You care for the team. You pray for the team. You pray for the mission. And you have an example of suffering for the team and rejoicing for the team. Without a team, you're not going to get very far. The church is our team. And there are, there are teams inside of the team. they are households. Okay, so individuals are given resources, given gifts, and so are households. And households are the basic unit where stuff gets done, and the church is a team of teams. is a family of families. And leaders inside of households and leaders in the church need to have the example of suffering for the team. Not just with the team. Suffering with the team is a kingly thing. That's valuable. It needs to happen. Suffering for the team is sometimes you suffer by yourself for a cause. There is a price to leadership. And that price often is a suffering that others do not know of but it's for something. There is a price to accomplishing things. You give up time and resources to accomplish things. Those are trades. Uh, A king, they do work, fitting to their station, and they suffer with the team. and They share in the blessings, and they rejoice with the team. You get the difference between rejoicing for the team versus rejoicing with the team? Dressing for the team might happen in quiet, in silence, in your own private dwelling. This idea of giving thanks to God. But the king slaps people on the back and says, good job. The king is in the trenches with them. This is one of the reasons why when you read the story of King David, it's so disappointing when you hear that part just before the failing with Bathsheba. When it says, in the time of year when kings are off to war, David was in his palace. That's how that episode begins. the, The dissonance of that. The time when kings are off to war, David's in his palace. A king not acting like a king. So often in his life, he had acted like a king. He had suffered with his men. He'd been with them. He was in the caves with them. He was fleeing Saul with them. He was going to help to rescue their families with them. He was doing things. He was in the field of battle with them. He went with the people of Israel from the beginning. He fought against the Philistines with them. He fought Goliath alone for his people. So, when we're calling people to follow after Christ, we are calling them to follow after the perfect prophet who knows exactly what needs to be done and when it needs to be done. We are calling people to follow after the perfect priest who sacrifices for the mission, for the team. And he is the perfect king. He has already done things that are worse than what we are going to go through, and he has accomplished more than what we're going to accomplish. And he is pointing us to a glorious cause to fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And to do it in our stations, by household, church, and then by the civil sphere. We are called to be reflections of this. And we are asking men to give up their lives, to give up all of their lives, to give up all of their time, to be willing to sacrifice all of their relationships for the relationships that are involved in this goal. The call to follow after Christ is the call to die, and to give up your life, to give up the life that you're accustomed to, to give up the things that you value, and to say all of these things are to be put at the feet of Jesus Christ. That is the call of discipleship. Do you see the importance of providing for them a prophetic, priestly, and kingly example You call somebody to do this, to devote themselves to this, and they go, you don't seem like you're trying very hard at it. Do you actually even believe this thing that you're calling me to? And if they look at your life and there's not evidence that you think this is worth sacrificing everything for, then your own call is going to seem facile. John the Baptist was able to give a very credible call, and he had to tell his disciples twice. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Are you guys paying attention? This is the guy I was talking about. Now, when Peter and Andrew and Jesus and John are with Philip, Philip is called to come and he comes. Now, there are other places where people see you, all those places where you help in the church, help at work, These are all things where you have the opportunity to make your testimony powerful. We'll go to verse 45. Go to page 5. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All right. Philip, he's new to the game, and he's saying, guess what? I found the guy that the Bible talks about. He very quickly is trying to say, I'm following him, you follow him. We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. There's an objection here, and the objection sounds sort of like you know, hometown pride or whatever in general, the Jews had a low opinion of the Galileans. Why? The Galileans were in the north. They were near Samaria. They were near the Gentiles. The influences there were negative. So sort of the bad company corrupts good morals thing. The culture there was not as strenuously Jewish. And so there's a general, you'll find people raising up Nazareth or Galilee as a negative thing. But here's the deal. Philip's a Galilean. He lives in Galilee. So what is this about? Is this sort of like racist self-hatred? That is not the point. This guy is raising a concern about what the scriptures teach. He's saying, there's nothing in the Bible about Nazareth or Galilee for this guy. There's nothing that says that we're going to have this. In fact, what do the scriptures say? The scriptures say, This guy's going to come from Bethlehem, but he's known as a Nazarene. Well, he doesn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem yet. There's an objection raised, and the answer that Philip gives is, why don't you come check it out? Come and see. And this language is sort of a theme that we see, this idea of coming and seeing, beholding, looking, There's a call to look into these things. We are calling men to investigate. We're asking them to seriously stop and think. We are asking them to engage with the intellectual propositions of who Christ says He is and to see if these things are so. Philip says to Nathaniel to come and see. There's a cause to advance. There's a leader to follow. This is an opportunity you do not want to miss out on. There's not always a second chance to do the right thing in a scenario. You can miss out on opportunities. There are opportunities that come across your path in life and you can blow them. You really can. You can repent later and that's good. You should. But you still can miss out on things. And so when there is a duty, strike in the moment to do the duty. And when you have a friend. Who has an opportunity and you see the opportunity and they do not and you tell them hey you should do this thing right now and they say I, I don't know don't leave it there tell them a second time no but seriously let's let's look into this let's check this out come and see so this pushing in do people like to be pushed to do things that they don't want to do they do not Christians are called to push people to do things they do not want to do the alternative is that you just leave people in their sin. The alternative is that you tell people, that's fine, entertain yourself to death. This is him whom, whom the Moses spoke in the law, and this is who the prophets wrote about. And so what is he doing? Philip is pointing to the word of God. Is he saying, this is a guy I think is great? No, he's saying, this is the guy the scriptures say we are waiting for. This is the wisdom of God in opposition to the wisdom of the world or demons or the flesh. This encouragement to friends to come and test the Messiah, expecting to find what is good, this is a risk. And you should be willing to risk things on Christ. You will either lose friends that you should be glad you lose, or you will find that these friends become better friends. Now there's a temptation to try to find a way that works better. Rather than appealing to the word of God, rather than telling people this is the truth, the idea that this is going to make everything feel better, it's going to solve all your problems, Jesus is going to be this magical thing. Look, we need to point people to the fact that Jesus Christ came to pay for our sins and to restore what has been lost. And we need to remind them of the fact that they're not happy now, that they will suffer if they follow Christ, but it will be a suffering that is far better than the suffering they have now. It will be a suffering with purpose. That there will be solutions to problems. But the question that people want to ask is, will this work? And the question you need to be ready to ask them back is, work for what? Is this going to work for what? Is this going to work to make it so that everybody likes you? No. Is popularity your God? Is this going to work to make you money? Well, it might. It also might not. Generally speaking, the law of God helps you to make more money than if you don't apply it. But there are righteous people who have been poor. Is this going to make it so that I have a bunch of pleasures in this life? Well, there are some delights. And even your suffering will be sweet. But there will be suffering. So the question is, what does it solve? What problem does Christ solve? What goal is discipleship of Christ designed to fix? And if we don't realize that the world is made for God, as a theater for his glory, we're going to think that there's something else to do with it. Discipleship is about filling the world with the glory of God, and you will find that as you see the glory of God more deeply, that all of life is made better. But that doesn't mean all your circumstances will get fixed. This question, can anything good come from Nazareth, is a concern for the authority of God's word. And what we'll find is that even though Jesus is associated with a bad, with a backwater, a bad land, a bad background, a cursed place with a cursed past, the lack of apparent means he's a poor man, seconds later, we're going to see Nathaniel say, you're the king of Israel. So let's look at that. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. What is deceit that's inside of you? See, Inside of you is self-deception. Self-deception is you believe falsehood and you try to avoid being corrected. Self-deception is the process whereby you hear truth and you find ways to not believe it. It's the process whereby you hear truth and you find ways to not believe it. Jesus is saying, here is an Israelite indeed. Here's a true Israelite in whom is no deceit. The basic point is, here's an Israelite who is trying to actually be loyal to the covenant people, a true one. And here's an Israelite who is trying to figure out the truth. Think about the difference between the ordinary person you meet and somebody that's trying to actually figure it out. Have you met people who you have a close relationship with? You spend lots of time talking to them about Christ. You try to draw them in. You say, look, I care about this because it answers the questions. It resolves the problems. It gives meaning to life. It removes so much of the misery of this life. And it saves from hell. The knowledge of God is the answer. And they yawn. They're uninterested. They don't care. It's fine that this works for you, but I don't think this is for me. And then there's somebody who you have very little relationship with. You talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ and they are entranced. And they ask questions. And they're looking for more information. And they're asking questions. And you give them books to read and they read them. You ever had the alternate experiences? You ever seen that? Maybe somebody else is teaching and you see the difference between those reactions. The one who's trying to figure it out asks questions, looks into things, reads the books, tries to apply. And on the other side, there is that dragging along, looking for ways to escape response. Those differences, that's the difference between a false Israelite, a false churchman, a person in whom there is much deceit, and a person who's a true Israelite, a true churchman. Somebody who is trying to remove self-deception. Nathaniel said to Jesus, how do you know me? So his initial response is not just to say, okay, what is this? Why why do you know anything about me? But rather, that line from Jesus, behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. That line struck a chord with him. He's going, "How how do you know anything about me? How do you know that I'm a person who's trying to sincerely pursue the knowledge of God, who's trying to be a holy Israelite, a person who's trying to figure it out and asking questions with sincerity? The, the question, has anything come from Nazareth that's good? Can anything come from there that's good? is not a question that's dismissive and blowing off Jesus. It's a question rooted in healthy biblical skepticism. You as a Christian are obligated to a biblical skepticism. What I mean by that is this, if somebody presents a doctrine to you, unless they can show it to you from the scriptures, give you an argument to be able to prove it from the scriptures, you ought to go, that's a nice story, now prove it to me. If somebody is telling you that there's some truth claim, they need to demonstrate it. The one who's teaching has the obligation to prove, and we are called to a biblical skepticism. Now, the biblical skepticism is not a lazy skepticism. We are not to just say, yeah, prove it to you, I'm not going to look into it. If somebody says, no, this is true, come with me, let me show you. There's an effort that needs to go into looking into it. And so when you look into it, what you then do is test it according to the Scriptures. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. So, let's think about how does Nathaniel respond. Nathaniel's response to, You know, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, is, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Does that seem disproportionate to any of you? If somebody said, I saw you when you're under the fig tree, would your response be to say, This guy is God? Does that seem like a reasonable response? I mean, if he just said, You're king, right? If, if somebody says to you, I saw you when you're under the fig tree, and you go, Why, wow, you're a king, your immediate response would be to think, This guy is being sarcastic. If anybody said this to you in your life ever, in response to you saying what Jesus said, your response would be to think that somebody's being sarcastic. So how do you make sense out of this? Well, first, verse 47, behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit, points to this idea of you're a true believer, and you're trying to figure it out. Then, this question of how do you know me points to okay, you know something about me. What is this? How do you have this knowledge? And Jesus is saying, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There's something going on with the call of Philip being under the fig tree and seeing him there that relates to the earlier question. Philip comes to Nathaniel when he's sitting under a fig tree, which is a symbol that's used throughout the scriptures to refer to a position of prosperity and peace. In addition to that, what he's doing under that fig tree, apparently, you know, there's this kind of idyllic scene that we all have in our minds of reading a book under a tree, right? This idea of sitting under the tree and reading. He's sitting there and thinking about something, and apparently it has to do with the Messiah. So the fact that Jesus knows anything about him is something that is disturbing, that you know the kind of person I am. And secondly, when he gets to... Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There's something about being aware of what he was doing there. It has to do with thinking about the Messiah. And so Philip is sent to call him, and he's sent as an instrument of Christ, both providentially and as a servant. But in addition to that, the fig tree itself being a place of thought and prosperity and repose, Jesus sees what he's doing there. And so Nathaniel quickly changes his position. This is a marker of a person who has integrity. A person who has integrity doesn't have to be dragged along once they've been shown they're wrong. A person of integrity will change fast. Now here's something that's a little bit terrifying, because people who change all the time are dangerous. They're unstable. They're blown about by every wind of doctrine. And because we all know that, guess what we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to put on the malaise, the fake cool of, I don't care. Right? This is, every teenager has figured this out. If I don't seem interested, then everyone will think that I am more mature. I will seem disinterested in everything, and everyone will think I'm super mature. You know, they, they realize it doesn't work as well as they were hoping it did. And so what they do is they start to realize that they need to engage on some things. But let's take this and go to the less extreme. For us, if somebody tells you you're in sin, you become persuaded they're right, and then you don't admit it, that indicates a hardness of heart. If somebody comes and rebukes you and tells you that you're in sin, and then you quickly admit it, that indicates a softness of heart once you've been persuaded. Integrity results in a quickness To change once you've been shown to be wrong. And so Nathanael here demonstrates for us that Christ is exactly right when he says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael doesn't hear answers from Jesus and write them off. Nathanael hears answers from Jesus and with the minimum amount of evidence necessary to persuade him, he changes his confession outwardly. He is not slow. He is quick to promptly and sincerely heed the call and obey. So he says, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. He is shown by the fact that Christ is aware that there's something about his thinking about the Messiah that's occurring while he's under that tree being used as a symbol. And that tree, the fig tree, reminds him of the coming of the Messiah as well. Okay, so let's think about this. This fig tree thing is used throughout. So go to page 7 of the, hand, uh, of the handout. It's used throughout the scriptures to talk about the times of peace and the time of messianic rule. I want you to look at point 16 first there. 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 24 to 25. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river of, from Tifsa... Even to Gaza. So this is talking about Solomon when he was reigning from the Euphrates to Gaza, which is the border of Egypt. Now, does anybody know that this the territory that Abraham was promised to rule over? That his says, Hey, your seed, your descendants are going to rule over this space from the Euphrates to Egypt. Solomon did. This is a fulfillment of that. Namely, over all the kings on this side of the river and he had peace on every side all around him and Judah and Israel dwelt safely each man under his vine and his fig tree from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Dan is in the far north and Beersheba is in the south. It would sort of be like if we said like from Maine to Florida. That's how you would understand it. Every man under his vine and fig tree. Zechariah Talks about in the days of the new covenant, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. This idea of having your own property, being there, enjoying it. Micah chapter 4, I've got the longer thing there, talks about the latter days. It's talking about the time of the new covenant. But look at verse 4, I've got underlined. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. A part of the promise of the New Covenant is a general bringing of prosperity. And so the fig tree is a symbol for prosperity. And the sitting under the fig tree is an event that reminds of the Messiah. So when Jesus says, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He is saying, I knew about you before Philip found you. I know what you were thinking about. You are under the fig tree, which is a symbol for messianic things. And I'm referencing this as an event in your life and a prophetic symbol. And so this is an appeal to his divinity. And it's an appeal to his messianic role. And it's appeal to specific knowledge about Philip. Sorry, about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's response is, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I mean, is it shocking to you how quickly Nathaniel gets it? The only way you make connections like that that fast is if you are steeped in the Word of God. Verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That Jesus is saying, I gave you a very, very, very small sign. And you believe because of this small sign. You'll see greater things than these. Notice the these. The these is plural. The these is plural, which means that there's multiple things that are a part of the sign. It's not, I'll give you greater things than this. Okay, so there's the parts that we just connected. Because I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? The seeing him when he wasn't there, so this the the idea of supernatural knowledge, and the fig tree, the idea of the messianic thing. Those are the things, it's plural. He said Jesus is also identifying the parts here that are being linked together. Because I saw you under the fig tree. There's only two parts. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The heavens opening. What is heaven opening about? Heaven's already opened in his baptism. Right. What's the heavens opening about? Well, the heavens opening is partly a reference to the idea of an ascension, him going up. But the heavens opening is also about the coming down of blessing, And so there's this ascending and descending, but the ascending and descending gets referenced, and now there's this idea of the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. When you think about angels, don't you typically think about them coming from heaven down? But what gets listed first? Ascending and descending. That word ascending, coming first, is supposed to remind us that angels are here. They're already here. And we're taught elsewhere that there are individual guardian angels for every covenant member of the church, including the little children. Jesus says, of the kingdom of God are such as these. He's talking about children. And he says that, and he says that we should be careful to not cause children to stumble because their angels see the face of God. So the idea that there's an angel who sees the face of God, who is assigned to every covenant child, is one of the reasons why we should be careful to not offend even the least who are in the church. So we have this idea that angels are here already. We are not alone. right? God is with us everywhere. But guess what? You also have angelic guard. You are not alone. You're not alone because God is there, and you are not alone because there is angelic guarding of you all the time. We do not see the world as it is. We see the world in a naturalistic, materialistic way that all, exi- all that exists is the stuff we can touch and smell and see and taste and hear. But that is not the case. Every now and then, God causes people to have a veil removed where they can see more of reality than they could before. There's the story of Elisha and the seeing of the armies of angels. There is an unseen world And that unseen world is captured for us in Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22. And Jesus is referring to it here. And he's saying that he is the ladder that connects heaven and earth. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. And there is angelic power that comes to minister to the people of God. And it comes to glorify God in the earth. And Nathanael is going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There's an event called the Transfiguration where you see Elijah and Moses with Jesus. and They're ministering to Jesus, and Jesus is gloriously displayed there. But also, what we have here is this idea of the ministry to Jesus that's going to occur. And one of the things that has occurred already at this point, before he was baptized, is his testing in the wilderness. In his testing in the wilderness, he's ministered to by angels. Satan comes, and he seeks to tempt him and to destroy him in the desert. And angels come to him and minister him there. That's not only a one-time thing. This is ongoing. So in Genesis 28, what you have is it says, verse 10, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed... And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, the Tower of Babel was an attempt for men to build ladders to heaven. The the pyramids that you see throughout the earth are stair steps to heaven. They are an effort of man to reach the throne of God, and they cannot do it. The only stairway to heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one that causes by his mediation the use of angels not to come simply in judgment, but to come and be a part of, caring for, and ministering to the people of God. Verse 12, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a promise of the church going out to fill the earth. Behold, I am with you and will keep you, will guard you, protect you wherever you go. The promises of I am with you and I will keep you. Right? This idea of God being with us, that's what we get in the Great Commission. I'm with you. That's what Joshua is told when he goes into to conquer the land. The promise of God being with us is a promise of success in doing the work. And we'll bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God, but the name of the city that had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you, or I will tithe. So there's this famous vow from Jacob where he gets this vision about the ladder from heaven, sees how amazing it is that God is with man in the earth, with him in particular, has made promises to the people of God, and he vows to do his duties. So Christ is teaching us that he is that ladder which Jacob saw. He is teaching us that he is the bridge that makes it so that we can receive help from heaven rather than just judgment. And so the ministering work of the angels to be present and to ascend and descend is a work that is provided by the mediation of Christ. They are servants in the household of God. They serve the sons who are made sons by adoption. And so by the mediation of Christ, we have all of that. And so Nathanael, who was quick to believe and quick to accept whence he saw the proof, he is then told that he will see far greater things. If we apply the little that we have been given. We are promised that we will be given far more. As you apply the knowledge of God that you have, you will find that God causes you to understand more deeply. And so we see those things over and over again, and a community that is a community that's unified in the faith and unified in working together is key to growing in integrity. What we want to see is the removal of self-deception And we want to manifest that by doing what we believe quickly and saying to others that we have found the truth in Christ and calling them to come and see. Comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.